Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Today, we're going to be talking about what is coming down the pike in terms of the global economy, which is really important if you're a builder or if you just live in the world because it's helpful to know these things. And we're going to do that through the frame of what happened during COVID, what changed, and where we're going from here. And my guest to unpack all of that for us is the renowned financial journalist, Felix Salmon, who has written this new book called The Phoenix Economy. And Felix is the chief financial correspondent for Axios and the host of the Slate Money podcast. Now, as you will see, Felix is English. He studied at the University of Glasgow and then moved to New York in 1997 He began blogging in the year 2000, remember blogging, and took it up as a full-time profession in 2007, working for noted economist Noriel Rubini. Now, he has moved on, of course, into the world of journalism and podcasting, and he's just a very thoughtful guy because he has an economist's mindset, right? He brings that into everything he does. He's also a keen observer of what's going around in the world in which we live. And funny enough, I found out that he's my neighbor. We live like three blocks apart from each other. So that was really funny. Now, what we're going to be talking about today with him is what happened over the last couple of years. And specifically, here's what you're going to learn. You're going to learn about you know, why risk was reapportioned, how we thought about risk changed, and how that affected how we lived our lives. We're going to be talking about and learning about this whole craziness in the stock market with all of these meme stocks and how people changed their thoughts about investing. And it's really interesting. We get into this conversation that I think is a really important lens to see the world about why people are sort of willing to take crazy risks and investments and throw their money into stuff that's highly speculative versus the old-fashioned way of just trying to make money over time. We're talking about that, and then we'll talk about the future. So that is the conversation. It's a really, I think this is a kind of conversation where, listen, I think, you know, I try to give you value every week. What I like about this conversation is that Felix, he's the kind of guy who you'll listen to this conversation and you'll be smarter in your day. You'll go to that, you know, cocktail party or you'll be in a conversation at the water cooler or whatever, and you're going to have some hot takes on the world that no one else has, and you're going to have a perspective that is fresh and unique to be a good conversationalist, which you always want to be as FOMO sapiens. Now, my small ask of the week is merch. If you haven't checked out FOMOSapiens.com, the FOMO shop, it is very cool. I promise you, high quality only. 
I have a bunch of this stuff. I wear it around and I like it. So go check that out. It makes a really good gift or something cool to wear over the summer. I promise you. I just gave actually a hat to Anastasia Seabohm, who's been on the show before. She wore it out and about. She started texting me. People were stopping her to ask her about the hat. So the hat is a good conversation starter. Thanks, Anastasia. All right. And now on to the interview. As you know, I like to start every show with the same question. And the question is this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I would say December 2000, I was fired from my job as a journalist at a company called Bridge News um, down in the World Financial Center in New York. And I was on an H visa. And at the time, what that meant was that I was basically immediately out of status on that visa. I was basically an illegal immigrant as of the following day, because the only thing that allowed me to be in the country was my employment status with Bridge News. And I was very sad. And I thought this meant that I had to go back to the UK, which I didn't really want to do. But I kind of hustled. And I did a few things that I still to this day don't know how entirely legal it was, but I got on a plane back to the UK um, and got myself a brand new sort of quasi, you know, quasi legitimate I visa as a foreign correspondent, uh, which I wasn't even working for this company, but I was freelancing for them. Um, and that kept me in the country. And that basically laid the groundwork for everything that came afterwards. Otherwise, I would have slunk back to the UK, which, as you know, voted to basically fall off the planet and drop into the North Sea in 2016, which ended up happening in 2020. And I would I would be a miserable wretch in England were it not for that quick, you know, running around trying to find a visa solution. I, yeah, it's the it's the only it's the only story in England. It'd be like Brexit is terrible. Brexit is terrible, and I'd be the world's <laughs> most boring journalist. All right. Well, thank God that didn't happen, and we have you here. And a lot of our listeners, I know, read your stuff and get your newsletters. And what we just realized with Felix here is we're neighbors. So you know, that's now I'm going to have to like keep my eyes out when I walk around the neighborhood for you and wave to you. But the the topic of the day is your new book. The Phoenix Economy, which I have read and which is so topical. And it's really talking about, I don't want to put words in your mouth because, you know, it's hard for me to describe your book. But what I would say is what you are doing is you are giving us a lens through which to think about the last couple of years of the pandemic, to understand the trends, the lessons, the things that we may have noticed but didn't understand or the things we may have entirely missed, and then use them as a lens to look into the future. Is that a fair That's characterization? better than I could have put it myself. I need, I, need you to, I need to keep you in my pocket for every interview I do from here on in. Oh, boy. I imagine you're going to be doing good ones, so I'll be there for you. Now, the, the book is really about, though, and you have this term that you have um, coined. It's your FOMO, and it is the new not normal. And that really is the lens through which we see the world in your book. So let's just start right there. Talk about the new not normal define it and then tell us about some of the themes of this age so with hindsight and this wasn't entirely obvious at the time that call it 70 year period from 1950 to 2020 
was a period where things were pretty boring. Um, there was relatively low volatility. You could predict things with a relatively high degree of certainty. You could make long-range plans based on where the world was going to be in 20 or 30 years' time, and you could have a relatively high degree of assurance that the world would be there or thereabouts. People keep on talking about how you know the internet changed the world, but the internet didn't change the world nearly as much as, say, the Industrial Revolution did or the Second World War did or something like that. So what my thesis is, is that we are not in that predictable world anymore, that we are entering a world of much more unpredictability. We just had the first major global pandemic in a century. It will not be the last in a century. There will be more. We had Russia invading Ukraine. We had a bunch of like weird, unexpected things are going to wind up happening that haven't even happened yet, but all manner of weird things are already happening. Like, for instance, um, a bunch of companies raised a bunch of money in the wake of the lockdowns because of zero interest rate policies and government liquidity and stuff. And what that created was a huge amount of money going into Silicon Valley and that money going into Silicon Valley Bank. And weirdly, all of the money going into Silicon Valley Bank wound up making that bank very fragile and causing it to fail. That was not something that anyone predicted. It wasn't really predictable. It was unexpected. It came out of left field. Um, there was a lot of Sturm und Drang happening around the time of it. There was like a mini emergency that then needed to be put out. But that kind of weird unexpected event is going to happen more often and what i try to do in the book is make a case that it's actually because of the pandemic most of those unexpected events are going to happen because of things that really changed profoundly during the pandemic not just financially but along a whole bunch of different axes like time and space and mental health and stuff like that yeah, I think I think it's really fascinating to, to I mean the example of Silicon Valley Bank is a great one where it threw me back to 2008 when I was working at AIG at the time. Whoops. And I remember when you know Bear Stearns failed and I was and then it you know it's like they cleaned it up and you're just like, "Well, okay, moving on to the next." You don't know there's all this stuff happening under the surface that some people may see because they're a hedge fund manager and their positions are crazy and they're going to have to sell off all these bonds. There's all these repercussions. And it seems like, you know, we are now three years out and we're only starting to get a look at these things. Like I, I've been reading lately about all these these shootings that people go to the wrong house in the, in the United States and they get shot and you sort of like, well, why is that? Well, all these people bought guns during the pandemic. So there's all these things that happen that we, we, we kind of noticed or didn't because we were all in altered states. And now we're starting to see years later, the repercussions of these things. The, the word I kept in the back of my head while I was writing this book, um, was febrile, um, which, mm. you know, which means feverish. Um, it also has a broader meaning of just being sort of tense and on edge. And the main symptom of COVID was like running a fever, right? But on a much more metaphorical level, that fever infected a lot of people. And we saw it in both positive and negative ways. Like, for instance, in the summer of 2020, there was this huge 
resurgence of Black Lives Matter, which had started many years previously to that, I think 2014. But it was only in 2020 that Black Lives Matter really got buy-in from white Americans across the country. And for the first time ever, a majority of white Americans said, yes, systemic racism is a problem. We need to do something about it. And there were these marches and everyone was in, in very heightened state, um, if you remember back then. And then just a few months after that, there was this big backlash and suddenly all of those people who thought that systemic racism had existed were then suddenly they became like anti-woke and said that it didn't. And that kind of massive um, you know, swing back and forth, I think, is entirely expected now in the new not normal. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos Fomo Sapiens? Now, that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Now, you, you have a term that you use in the book, which I mean, I mean, I feel a little sad to tell this to everybody, but, you know, it's a safe space for me. <laughs> I didn't, I had to Google it. And then I, I was like, okay, epistemology, I get it, right? But I forgot what that meant, too. But you talk about this notion of an epistemic crisis, which I would sort of think about as that we were in a kind of a post-knowledge phase where everything was at your fingertips and you could Google anything. And so like nobody remembered. It's like, what's the capital of Kentucky? Well, I don't know. It's Frankfurt, by the way, but people would just Google it. <laughs> and then we got into this weird time where there was so much uncertainty and so much misinformation, disinformation, misunderstanding that we, we actually felt like we didn't know anything. And you call this an epistemic crisis. Talk about that and how that drove our society. This was deeply profound and I think is, is kind of the most important thing that happened during the pandemic beyond, you know, the millions of people who died. Not to, you know, say that wasn't important at all. It was. But the way that most people affected lived through the pandemic was not being sick. Right. This is one of the things that really struck me is that when we think back to the, you know, the plagues of centuries ago, we think of like buboes and, you know, stenches and dying people everywhere. But the fact is, even in the middle of a plague, most people are healthy most of the time. And the question is, then, then what happens to you? And what happened to us was that for the first time from in our lives, for many of us, we were in this world where we just didn't know shit or even worse in a world where we thought that we knew shit and that shit that we thought that we knew was not the case. So you will remember when everyone thought that COVID was a fomite, you know, it was a germ that lived on surfaces and we were busy scrubbing everything all the time and, you know, disinfecting our groceries and that kind of thing. That was 
a thing that we thought was true and then we needed to jettison that thought and realize that it was not true and then make you know create a new world a new belief system where it works a different way and so what we wound up doing was basically recreating the way that humanity has built up knowledge over the centuries which is we have a thesis, we think it's true, we work on the assumption that it's true, we get evidence that it's not true, we jettison that thesis and um, adopt a new one. And it's a very scientific method, but some people are better than that than others. And what you generally found was that most people at some point stopped trying to stay on top of, you know, new facts. And they just alighted upon a worldview that they thought was good enough and they stuck with it. And with, in a lot of those cases, that worldview is just false. And I think one of the main lessons of my book is that unless you are willing to change your mind much more frequently than you ever needed to in the past, it's going to be really difficult to live in this new post-pandemic world. How does that, how does that play out you know, for a decision maker? Like you're the CEO of a company. And it's funny, the other day I was talking to somebody who manages the endowment for a, you know, one of the largest endowments in the country for a university and sitting around with a bunch of these money managers talking about the fact that in a 4% interest rate environment, I think or four and a half, whatever we are today, they just don't know if it's going to go up or it's going to go down or stay the same. And they have no idea how to invest anymore. And basically there's a lot of risk for them. And what you're kind of saying is, yeah, that's right. And by the way, you have no idea where things are going. And in the past, well, it might've been slightly more predictable. Now, who really knows? And so as we think about, you know, folks who are listening, who are trying to decide what to do with their business or where to go to school or all these things in our lives, like what, what can we, what can we do if anything to make better decisions in this kind of environment? The slogan which i think is a useful one is strong opinions weekly held if you're the ceo of any company mm. you can't just dither right you can't say i don't know and create a big fuzzy gray zone and say like do something fuzzy in the gray zone that's going to get you nowhere that's going to achieve mm. nothing so you need to set a course you need a strategic direction and that strategic direction needs to be ba based on where you think the world is headed and how you think you can play a role in that future world so that's as necessary as it has always been but the big change is you need to be able to pivot you need to be able to change your mind you need to be able to say wait hang on a sec that's not the case anymore i'm going to tear up that strategy and build a new one and you need to do that more frequently than ever before and you need to be able to you know be lean into that um, one of the things that's been fascinating to me has been watching a bunch of the crypto true believers basically holding on to their pre-crypto winter beliefs about where crypto was headed and saying, you know, oh, you know, this is just no more than a flesh wound. We'll get through this. It's like, no, this is a profound change to the entire <laughs> um, financial and regulatory structure within which you're working. You're going to have to um, embrace that and and understand and build a new strategy based around this new world that we are now in and the people who don't do that are going to fail because there is no company that is going to find itself in a world that is exact it looks exactly like the one that it predicted 
I think he just made the first ever Monty Python reference <laughs> in the history of FOMO sapiens. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. It's just a flesh well wound. Well done. <laughs> well done. So uh, if you don't know what we're referring to, then shame on you. Just Google it. But uh, but you know, you just kind of gave me uh, you you just you mentioned crypto and. You do talk, and one of the things, one of my favorite parts of the book is something that I've thought a lot about, obviously, with, you know, the theme, the theme of FOMO sapiens and, you know, as my own um, sort of uh, personal sort of FOMO around the fact that I stayed away from crypto because I always knew it was going to crash, but I missed, the, missed, missed the, the ride up the way. But you have people, you talk about this, this concept that I didn't, I hadn't come across before, but it's Kevin Roos uh, talks about it, this concept of ladders and trampolines. And then you sort of take us through how that drove a lot of the investing activities during the pandemic. So I'd love to, you know, share with the audience this notion because I think it's I, I was just like, wow, that's really interesting. It really frames up a lot of what people are thinking about these these days in terms of their economic opportunity. And then tell us how that played out when, you know, people are sitting at home so many hours a day in front of their computers. So if you talk to the old graybeards who do things like run large university endowments and they, and you ask them, you know, what is your job? what they basically say is get rich slowly. You know, we take a large amount of capital and we invest it for the long term and we l watch it gain value slowly over the long term. And eventually we wind up with lots of money due to the magic of compound interest and smart investment decisions and so on and so forth. And that is this idea of ladders. You climb the ladder you know, one rung at a time, you accumulate wealth, you, you, you start building interest income and that kind of thing, and you get richer and richer. For a lot of the millennial generation and Gen Zs and especially younger millennials who found themselves in the pandemic, that just didn't make any sense. They had a lot of time. What they didn't have was a lot of capital. They did have liquidity because we were all getting these stimulus checks from the government. And we had a zero interest rate uh, and we had a zero interest rate environment, what's known as ZERP, um, and which has basically been in place since 2009 or 2008. And you, in a zero interest rate environment, you can't just take a little bit of money, put it in the bank, watch it compound, and then get rich over many decades because there's no interest rate and it doesn't compound. So instead, what happened is this idea of trampolines, which is basically get rich quick. Like I am never going to get rich slowly. Getting rich slowly doesn't work. I don't have the initial capital I need to get rich slowly. I don't have access to the kind of interest rates that need to be you need to compound to get rich slowly. I need to get rich quick. If I'm going to get rich quick, I'm going to do that by trading sneakers. I'm going to do that by buying dogecoin i'm gonna do that by setting up an nft drop you know i'm gonna make this happen and i know that what i'm doing is risky and i know it's probably not going to work but i'm gonna have a community with me on reddit or discord or wherever i live and if i lose money they are going to be there for me to commiserate and to laugh at it and to be ironic and if i make money it's going to be awesome and it's this kind of 
roulette wheel, place it all on 14 and hope for the best uh, way of way of investing, which actually, and this is one of the big points I'm trying to make in the book, is rational for a certain person at a certain point in their life when you can afford to lose your money, when you don't have dependents, when you don't have a huge amount of wealth that you need to worry about protecting. This kind of let's try to get rich quick um, attitude, which we saw very strongly during that sort of meme stock winter of early 2021, became incredibly important and influential in the stock market to the point at which even the old, you know, even the old graybeard get rich slowly types started, you know, firing up Reddit accounts and trying to work out what the kids were doing because they really were driving the market. FOMO. FOMO. It's, it's amazing because, because you see the, the, the traditional folks they get sucked in. They're always the last in and the first to get hurt, right? You you never want to be the last into a trend because you're going to be the person wearing, you know, the stonewashed jeans when everybody <laughs> else is moving on. And and it's it's and it, it it's sad when they do that. When the principled people give up their principles, that's when you know that the game is up. Uh, speaking of games being up, you talk about you talk about NFTs, and I will admit that I got sucked in at the very end. I was that guy. Like I actually sort of got right like the weekend before it all crashed I got my first NFT so <laughs> I didn't lose a lot of money but I knew I knew it I was like what am I doing but I just I was curious but you talk about NFTs and and you know within this kind of YOLO kind of environment talk about that phenomenon because I think it is it's it's like another level up from the silliness of some of the the stuff that happened in crypto and GameStop and, and stuff like that how did how, and there's this whole weird thing about like forced rarity that also drove it that you talk about. So how can, you know, can you just kind of explain to everybody who watched this? Like you were very good at taking these crazy things and making them understandable. How, how do you view the NFT thing? So NFTs did not invent the concept of artificial scarcity. That's been around for centuries. Uh, you know, I have limited edition prints, which date back to the 18th century. And, you know, that's very common, but the thing that they did was that they combined artificial scarcity with a very, very low barrier to entry to be able to create such things. You don't need to go to a printing shop. You can just press a few buttons on your computer and bang, you have an artificially scarce NFT. Um, and then they combined that with a sense of community. The, the idea behind NFTs wasn't that it was just about the object, but that owning the object gave you membership of a club. And suddenly, this kind of collecting bug that has always been with us became turbocharged by a desire to get into the cool kids club. And that if you bought a certain type of NFT, then that placed you in the room with all of the other members, all, all of the other owners of that NFT who are often very cool people with lots of crypto wealth who know what they're doing and you get your inner milieu, you know, you get to define yourself um, mm. as one of these people. And that's a place that a lot of people want to be. And if you look at many of like the NFT conferences that happen and the crypto conferences, there is a real desire to sort of have that situational relative um, positional wealth of like, I can get past this particular velvet rope and you can't because I own one of these monkey JPEGs and you don't. 
And so all of this kind of, it's a combination of YOLO and FOMO, right? Winds up driving people into this asset class because they don't want to miss out on the conversations that are happening behind the velvet rope. And I um, spent my youth in enough terrible nightclubs in downtown Manhattan to remember that <laughs> when you actually get behind the velvet rope, the conversation there and the drinks there and the people there are just terrible and it's never that impressive and you're like why did i care so much to get here I, sh I should just be back out there with everyone else where it's much more fun but you never really know that until you do it and so there's that huge crush of demand to get in there once you're in there you need to pretend that you're enjoying it because otherwise you feel like a chump and so the demand stays until of course it all just falls apart because the ease of creating these nft communities and the ease of creating these nfts meant that for all that any given nft was artificially scarce the total number of them was just going up and up and up and there was no re no real mechanism for distinguishing between the desirable ones and the undesirable ones yeah and speaking about things reverting quickly what really was interesting about that is that how quickly I was at this event, a really great event last year in a conference where they had a bunch of people who would, you know, a year ago they were working in, you know, real estate broker, um, uh, in a medical office. And then seemingly overnight, thanks to endorsement from, from people like Gary Vee, they had NFT collections that were selling for a ton of money. And then like just as quickly as that, the floodgates opened, it was gone again. And they were trying to do their next edition of their NFT and there was nobody to buy them. So it's like, you know, we think about this, this new not normal, the cycle times on trends that even if they move billions of dollars, they're so fast. It's, it's astounding. Yeah, I, I wrote in my newsletter recently about this guy called Gestad guy, who's an influencer who has brand relationships <laughs> with high-end hotels in Gstad and with Loro Piano and brands like that. And yeah, this is clearly like not just a sort of micro influencer, but more a short-lived thing. People, he's super cool right now. People love to be in his videos. People love to give him free tequila. And then at some point, probably within about five minutes, he'll be old news right these these things move very quickly and brands need to move very quickly if they want to hop onto them for fear of being you know that guy in the stonewashed jeans um if you're gary v and you can you know create an entire trend by sheer force of personality and you have millions of followers then maybe you can just make that thing happen but for most of us who are trying to sort of jump onto a trend before it really gets big and then ideally maybe cash out some profits before it crashes that's you know the same problem of market timing that stock market investors have always had and market timing is is the one skill that i think according to the literature basically no one has you can't do it it's not possible no no i tried and it's you know the interesting thing about gary v is gary v will then he'll do his next book or whatever will be about like how nfts were so bad and he'll create a new trend <laughs> around what he learned so like you know there is some value to just being completely shameless out there like it is gary v you, you know you know that but, he, uh, he co-owns a restaurant <laughs> with anthony scaramucci which is everything you need to know about gary v 
Wow. I, that is, wow. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Felix, one last question for you, uh, which is, we're not going to say the name because we're not giving them publicity. Uh, wh- one last thing for you, which is, you know, given everything you learned writing this book and, you know, your one of your superpowers, I learned as I read, is that you take these trends and you make them uh, understandable and then you give us a pathway to think about what they mean. So for folks listening to this, who are just saying, okay, great. So, wow, here we are in this new, not normal. What do you think is the number one superpower people need to power through and be successful in this new world? Nimbleness, I would say. Um, Mm. And what I, what I call in the book epistemic humility, Um, not just a willingness to admit that, you were wrong and you need to change your mind, but an eagerness to do that. Um, one of the things that I think has equipped me very well to see this is that for most of my career, I was a blogger. And this is a huge advantage if you're a blogger is the ability to say, oh, I was completely wrong about that. And that is the posts that you like writing the most because it's where you learn stuff. Um, if you're a more classical journalist and you come out and say, I was completely wrong about that, that was that's highly embarrassing. And then you probably get fired because they're like, why did you write something that was wrong? If you're a blogger, you can be like, I was completely wrong about that. And that is where people learn and where you learn. And the more that you can try and st- st- keep your priors loosely held um, and be willing to drop them, um, when new information comes along, the more you're going to be able to understand where we're at. All right. The book is called The Phoenix Economy, Work, Life, and Money in the New Not Normal. Now, if you want to find out more about Felix, you can head over to felixsalmon.com. It's spelled like the fish, S-A-L-M-O-N. You can also find him at Felix Salmon at Instagram, Twitter, and of course, like everybody else, he's on LinkedIn. All right. Felix Salmon. Thank you so much for being here. A pleasure. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.